The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. It's pretty much inevitable, I would say, that if you're a parent or a grandparent or anybody who has worked closely with children at some point in your life, you will have been called a hypocrite. It seems that if you change your mind about anything in a direction that leads to less pleasure or less fun or in any way any more inconvenience, you're going to be liable to receive that charge. Changes in circumstances don't make any difference. Dad, you said we could go to the movies. Well, that was before your sister started to be sick in the back of the car and your mother was called unexpectedly to work. You promised, you hypocrite. So it goes. The charge of hypocrite from young people seems, I think, to focus on the breaking of words that seem to be promises, the breaking of, of what seem to be promises. And it's an accusation that indicates a breakdown of trust between two parties, or at least what was perceived as a trust by at least one of them. I think what we see here this morning in the gospel is a breakdown in trust. According to the Jesus who speaks in Matthew, the Pharisees have broken the trust that they hold by their status as teachers of the law of Moses, teachers of the way, the Torah, which is what that word means in Hebrew, the way that derives from the first five books of the Bible. And perhaps reflecting Matthew's community's close and complicated and complex competition with the early church in the Gospel of Matthew, especially in chapters 3 and 5 and in 23, Jesus really lets the Pharisees have it on this charge of hypocrite. He really, really lays into them. 
calling them hypocrites. They have broken this trust that they have as teachers of the law of Moses in two particular ways, I would say. They say one thing and do another. They say one thing and do another. And they do the right thing, but do it for the wrong reason. Do it for the wrong reason. It might be worth, as an example of that, pointing out, um, some of you may not know what the word phylactery is. Um, phylacteries were boxes, are boxes, that contain a passage of scripture from, the, from Deuteronomy that actually says, put these words on your mind and on your heart. And uh, very observant Orthodox Jews put that little piece of scripture inside of a leather box and tie it on their head when they're praying and also on their arm, on their left arm, which is the arm that's closest to the heart, which is where you would want the word of God to be residing. So when Jesus is referring to phylacteries, he's referring, uh, referring to a prayer practice that Pharisees used. And to this day, very Orthodox Jews, when they pray, wear these uh, phylacteries on their forehead and on their arm. And fringes referred to prayer shawls, uh, the fringes of which were uh, believed to represent prayers. So the longer the prayers, uh, the longer the fringes, the sort of more important or more powerful the prayers were. I've also heard that they refer to the commandments. So there's 613 fringes on these prayer shawls. So that's what Jesus is referring to. Now, it's one thing to wear those as a sign of, uh, of piety, perhaps in private, but not in public. And Jesus is referring to uh, a particular way of parading around with these prayer aids that the Pharisees in his time apparently were guilty of. So um, that would be an example of doing the right thing for the wrong reason and uh, to explain a little bit of the vocabulary there. So they say one thing and do another and they do the right thing but do it for the wrong reason. It's important to note that Jesus holds the teaching of the Pharisees actually in very, very high regard. He's not upset about the teaching. He's upset that it's been perverted, it's been sullied by the way it's being taught. Now let's look at the ways that uh, Jesus lays out these charges. The Pharisees don't practice what they preach. They interpret the law so narrowly as to imprison rather than liberate. God's law is meant ultimately to liberate. Jesus saw them using the law to imprison, to confine. They behave and dress so as to be seen in public as pious. They enjoy and encourage honorific titles and the perks that come along with them. And they seem not to have any difficulty watching uh, lesser folk labor under the, the burdens of the law while they themselves may sometimes take the easy way out when no one's looking. But I think there's more going on here than just this. I think by laying out these things that the Pharisees do that are negative, Jesus is also laying out positively what disciples are supposed to do. He's laying out for us the qualities of discipleship that followers of his are meant to embody in their lives. Disciples, students of Jesus, if you will, are to strive to have their words and their deeds match. 
to have their actions and words be congruent. Disciples of Jesus are to be generous in the application of Christian principles so that people experience freedom, spaciousness, rather than oppression and constrictedness. That's the way Christians are meant to apply Christian principles. Disciples of Jesus can take or leave appearances and titles, and they don't mind having their reward be a privately bestowed reward from God, the answer to a prayer quietly, rather than having the reward that comes from people think, my, my, that is really a pious religious person. Christians, disciples of Jesus, are willing to roll up their sleeves and get dirty as they follow Jesus, rather than try to seal themselves in some kind of hermetically contained box where they don't have to struggle with real life issues, real life situations in the application of Christian teachings. I think we have to remember that when we're reading or listening to these gospel passages, that we're careful not to kind of view them as some historical tableau to be viewed off in the distance once upon a time, sometime long ago, far away. I don't think so. In fact, I think we have to admit with regard to this particular gospel passage that we are, in fact, both Christians and hypocrites. We are disciples and Pharisees. In fact, I would say there's no other kind of Christian, no other kind of disciple than one who is also a hypocrite. Now, I'll ask you to join me here for a moment just in kind of a lighthearted tour of the heart of a hypocrite. This really can be lighthearted. It doesn't have to be heavy. We all know how hard it is, how really hard it is to do what we say and how easy it is to justify what we actually finally do. You know, every day in ways large and small, we do it. It's just we just do. We all know how much we desire human approval. Again, in ways large and small, it just is. Um, I think it's because in part we're not sure that we have God's approval, God's unconditional approval, God's unconditional love. That's not dependent on how we do, but nonetheless, we we still crave that human approval. I think each of us knows if we get quiet for a moment, uh, we know just how much energy each one of us expends to maintain our own image, whatever that image is, that self-image that we treasure, that we prize, that we put forward, that persona, that mask that we put in front of us. Each of us have full-time PR firms inside just churning out the propaganda, you know, for us to believe as well as other people. It just is. A quip from um, a man named Eugene Peterson, who's written a translation of the Bible that um, some of us I know uh, really enjoy. Eugene Peterson has a quip about hypocrites that goes like this. It's hypocrites don't sin any more often than others, 
we just lie about it more. We lie about it not only to others, but especially to ourselves, I think. If we're honest, we, we realize that we do lie to ourselves about what we do. And also to God, although God, of course, is not fooled. Now, along with this really razor-sharp clarity that Jesus offers to us in the Gospels of judgment, of really seeing things the way they really are, apparently without mercy, along with that is his insistence on boundless, bottomless, endless forgiveness, right? Matthew is the gospel that, that has us hearing the question, well, Master, how many times must I forgive my enemy? Seven times? Seventy times, seven times. And there are other passages like that that Jesus uses, uh, is, is quoted in, uh, in the gospel of Matthew. So together... This, this judgment, this clarity of the way things are, and this boundless mercy, love, forgiveness. There's a, uh, a pithy saying that I came across that kind of captures, I think, what Jesus is asking us to do, what, what Jesus does. It's, that, it's this, love without truth lies. Love without truth lies. Truth without love kills. Truth without love kills. We are asked to hold those together. That's our life work with ourselves and with others, is to hold those things together. In the final analysis, Jesus holds these tightly, inseparably together. I want to end with a quote from a man named Robert Capon, who is an Episcopal priest and writer. He's a little bit on the, um, on, the, on the edge of theology, but that's okay, I think, sometimes. And he has this to say uh, about morality and forgiveness and the church's role in those things. The church is not in the morals business. The world is in the morals business, quite rightfully, and it has done a fine job of it, all things considered. The history of the world's moral codes is a monument to the labors of many philosophers, and it is a monument of striking unity and beauty. As C.S. Lewis said, anyone who thinks the moral codes of mankind are all different should be locked up in a library and made to read three days' worth of them. He will go mad by the sheer sameness. What the world cannot get right, however, is the forgiveness business. And that, of course, is the church's real job. The church is in the world to deal with the sin which the world cannot turn off or escape from. She is not in the business of telling the world what's right and wrong so that it can do good and avoid evil. She's in the business of offering to a world which knows all about that tiresome subject, forgiveness for its chronic unwillingness to take its own advice.
as we let down our moralistic masks, the personas, the visages that we put out to the world and to ourselves even, as we, as we begin to bring those down, can we feel, can we imagine, can we welcome the grace of God that has a chance to come rushing in, to bathe those wounds, to heal those wounds, to strengthen us, to give us hope and courage and energy for the work that God has given us to do. I think we can. Amen.